Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. Well, we've been looking at the whole topic of God and suffering for a few weeks now, and this is now our last part of that topic. This is the second half of Jerry Weirwill challenging Brandon Duke on some of the aspects of his soul-making theodicy. Last time we looked at how Duke differentiated from John Hicks' version of soul-making, and this time we continue in that conversation addressing the soul-making perspective that Duke laid out about hiddenness. Duke was saying, if I understand him correctly, that God has to remain hidden so that he doesn't overwhelm people or coerce them into believing in him. Whereas Weirwill pushes back and says, well, why, why do you say that? There are plenty of examples where God is visible, and or at least his actions are visible to people in the Bible, and they still seem free, maybe not to believe in God's existence, but certainly whether or not they want to be faithful to God or rebel against him. Secondly, Weirwill brings up the whole issue of the four Ds, death, decay, deprivation, and damage, and why soul-making looks at those as good when Scripture calls death itself God's enemy. And then last of all, Weirwill asks the question of the effectiveness of suffering to bring about moral development. We can all point to cases where that certainly happens, but then there are other cases where suffering actually leads to the opposite of moral development, to moral decay, and to an increase in other people's suffering as well, needlessly. So this would be an interesting conversation for you to listen in on, to hear how these Bible-committed Christians are working out this very important subject of understanding how God has made our world and how we can make sense of it when we go through periods of suffering. Here now is episode 365, Challenging Soul-Making Theodicy, Part 2, with Brandon Duke and Jerry Weirwill. Welcome back to Restitutio, gentlemen. Thanks, Sean. Happy to be here. Looking forward to continuing the discussion. I'm, I've been appreciating listening to Jerry's perspective. Today, we're continuing our conversation from last time. We were just dipping our toes into the topic of God's hiddenness and unanswered prayer and times when God doesn't intervene. Brandon, uh, Jerry had challenged the position you stake out by pointing out many incidents in Scripture when people did experience God in visible and powerful ways, yet did not result in a coerced obedience. They didn't feel overwhelmed, in other words. Now, the test case he brought up was the wandering Israelites in the 40 years before entering the Promised Land. They saw all kinds of spectacular miracles. Jerry mentioned the smoke by day and the fire of the pillar of fire by night and, and manna. Uh, they saw all these things, and yet they still rebelled and made the golden calf and committed many other acts of rebellion. I think 10 are actually listed there in Scripture. How would you respond to that, Brandon? Can't moral development happen with God's presence, with like his overwhelming presence, or at least the presence that people experience in the Bible. And my answer is, I don't know. It seems like it's a mixed bag that he shows up on Sinai and they beg Moses to have God stop talking to them and for Moses to go in their place. We repeatedly see where people ask for distance. There's, I think, two sides to this part as well. You know, one is that God needs to give us 
enough instruction and presence for us to respond to in a meaningful way. But there's also a potential danger. Now we're going to be accountable for that. And if somebody is in a position where they are not prepared yet, God sees they're not prepared yet to respond to him correctly, and he gives them that kind of revelation, now they're going to be accountable for that and not responding to it. So it seems like God needs to pick his battles. He, there might be an appropriate time in each person's life or appropriate times for God to be more present than others. It might not be in someone's best interest for God to fully reveal himself to them when they're not prepared to respond. And God might know that and choose to reveal himself when they have the best opportunity to respond to him. So I think there's danger in some sense for us that God considers in both ways, revealing himself too much or not enough. And that's where I'm going back to this idea that he's trying to maintain this balance between instruction and space. And then I guess the other defense is this idea that, that we need space. And surely there's an extreme version of this sort of an argument to absurdity where if God flooded the whole universe with his presence, what room would there be left for us to make any decisions other than, you know, maybe just directly acknowledging his presence or not? There is something fundamental to this world where we move around and we have all these kinds of complex choices and things that we have to anticipate that seem to be his design to give us these opportunities. And the more he gives us some space there for that, it seems like it gives us opportunities to respond. Otherwise, I don't see any reason why he would give us that kind of space to push back a little bit. It seems like there's no reason for God to create a world in where we can make these kind of decisions anyway. We could be in a padded room with him and that would be that. Well, I think we have a large amount of agreement that God is not a helicopter parent. Yep. And so that he does give some degree of autonomy to the world and doesn't show up. Actually, him showing up in physically tangible ways is the minority, not Absolutely. the majority. And so I will agree with you that existentially, we experience an epistemic distance most of the time with God. Where I think I'm going to say I don't agree is that this is any part of a need for moral development. I can say it can play a part of moral development, but as for the soul-making theodicy, it is not a prerequisite. Well, maybe not on John Hicks' view. I'm trying to integrate a couple of different ideas here because, I mean, soul-making doesn't really account for a, a lot of the things that we're talking about, right? It, it's adopting ideas from the free will defense to address evil. It's adopting ideas from design to address suffering. And then this hiddenness idea it's trying to stretch the free will idea onto hiddenness, if, if I can put it that way, that there are logical entailments for this free, this free will that, that lead to some level of hiddenness. And it sounds like, did I just hear you correctly to, to say that you agree that some level of maybe not hiddenness, but some kind of epistemic distance from God is necessary for us to make moral choices? No, I deny the necessity of an epistemic distance in order for moral decisions to be made. I'm saying that people can make moral choices right in the face of God. Okay. Like Israel on Mount Sinai, yep. Moses yep. and the burning bush. So would you grant that, Brandon, or no? Yeah, I think people make those decisions, but I think we have to look at the kind of stress and duress that they're under when that happens. And if their entire lives were made up of that, it's very hard to imagine how a baby growing up from nothing, you know, from, a, from birth, to an old man 
could constantly be in that circumstance and how there wouldn't be something more valuable from his responding to a somewhat hidden God than constantly responding to an omnipresent overpowering God. It, it seems to me that there's something intrinsically morally valuable about that person responding to God in spite of some level of hiddenness. Well, I would have to say that Jesus Christ was probably closer to God than anybody. And I would say his moral judgments would be completely authentic. I think that's a great example. And notice the distance that God puts in that in that situation. Christ, Jesus prays, um, and God doesn't walk into the Garden of the Gethsemane the way he does in the Garden of Eden and say, you know, where are you? There's still a level of distance there, even for Jesus of Nazareth. There is some degree, meaning that God doesn't walk around in a bodily form next to Jesus as his BFF, uh, you know, but Jesus goes around wielding the power of God like on a dime. Jesus is so connected to God that I don't think there's the distance that this whole epistemic distance theory is really espousing. Mm. So we're, we're arguing for two different levels of hiddenness, two different levels of distance. And I'm, I got, does that sound right? Uh, I think also we're looking at what role does the epistemic distance play in the soul making theodicy perspective, which if you want to deny the way that I understood you trying to pose it was that epistemic distance plays some necessary role in free moral choices. And I'm saying, I don't think that's true. Jerry, you're arguing that there's just not a logical connection between God giving this sort of space for people to not believe in him and them developing morally. Yeah, I'm saying that it is possible for people to develop morally and to trust in God, knowing with certainty he exists. That's interesting. I don't have that intuition. I base it mostly on analogy, like what we talked about before, the way that we experience moral autonomy and freedom as we grow in age and sort of a, an imagining of if God were more present than even, even he were to Jesus, if he were present continually, I think that makes a very different kind of condition for a person to develop. I, I think it's very different. What about intermittently? Like the manna, the manna was there, but uh, people could doubt it. You know, there were some knuckleheads that went out on the Sabbath day, even though Moses had explained how it worked. And there were some uh, disobedient people who tried to keep it over, even though you're not supposed to. And, you know, so like there is disobedience in the face of direct evidence. Yes. Uh, I think that seems to be what Jerry's point is. You keep running to this extreme where it's like, well, if God flooded the world with his presence, well, we're not talking about that. We're right. talking about intermittent visibilities of God. There seems to be the possibility of that along with moral decision-making, not to mention those examples, but also, of course, Adam and Eve were directly aware of God and they disobeyed. So how, how do you make sense of these appearances or theophanies or whatever you want to call it of God. Yeah. So I don't think the hiddenness argument requires an extreme on either, either side that God could never reveal himself or must always like on, on either side. And so I think 
maybe Jerry and I are both pushing back against those extremes, like you're pointing out. I'm trying to say, under normal circumstances, what do we see happen in someone's decision making and in their development when they are faced with God's presence or some amount of God's absence? And I just want to be able to defend God as that God is entitled and he, ha- he might have a good reason for, in some cases, being more absent than what we would like. I, I think it's, it's a more modest claim than saying all moral development is based on people feeling like they're out, out on a limb without God. I, I, that's not necessarily the claim. Well, Jerry, would you agree with that statement? Yeah, I, I think I would. If you're just saying that there is some times when God doesn't reveal himself, uh, I think that's completely true. And that in those times, it is a test of our faith and character. And I would say the whole life is that way. Yeah, I think the issue, and maybe this is where I'm not sure how exactly your soul-making theodicy differs in this regard from like John Hicks. And so I'm trying to understand because a, a theodicy is a comprehensive system. It's not a description of just reality as we experience it right now. It's a description of ultimate reality. And that's where I find maybe the rubber meets the road. Because I understand you're describing the way we currently experience in the world and God, but I don't see it extending beyond that to explain the emergence of it, the function of it. And so I'm a little bit at a loss for knowing how your theodicy really does cohere. Okay, so you're expecting a theodicy to explain the origin, uh, direction, and ultimate end of the entire creation? With respect to evil and suffering and God's existence as an all-powerful, all-loving creator. That's interesting because we don't have access. The access that we have is, is our current experience, right? I mean, we have testimony through scripture. We have both promises and accounts of the past. But what we have direct access to is the world that we live in now. And so to, to focus our exploration on why God would have the world as it is now be this way, seems a reasonable, maybe even a humble thing, rather than trying to say, look, I would love to work a theodicy that touches on every element of systematic theology. I think it's a great project. I don't know if I've ever seen anyone do that. I would argue that I'm trying to put together one that doesn't have any conflicts with a broader systematic theology. So if there's an objection to like the idea that God gives us free will because it just simply doesn't cohere with the Bible, right? We, we have a reading where we just, you know, a compatibilist reading, then, then fine. That's, I, I like that as a pushback. Um, I don't agree with that pushback, but I think that's the right approach. If what we're saying is we can imagine other ways that God might do soul making, I think that's potentially possible. I can't eliminate all possible worlds where God would make souls in a different way. What I'm trying to do is just identify, is the way that this world is a plausible world, a plausible way for God to, to make souls? So, so maybe what I'm saying is just, is just less than, than what you're hoping for. But also, I do think, I still have this sense that there's these, these fundamental objections you have to, not to free will, not the exercise of moral freedom, but like the idea that there are these conditions for that that the conditions that I'm saying are entailed from 
a design or a, a desire to use moral development as part of God's plan. You just don't think they're entailments. Sound, does that sound right? Is that where we're different? Yeah, I think so. Because I see a failure, massive failure, on the way that evil and suffering actually does produce moral development in the world. And I also see a failure for God in the way that moral development is actually achieved through evil and suffering but at the end of one's life. It sounds like I'm not really addressing Jerry's objections. And let me, let me see if I can throw them back at you, Jerry, and, and see if I, if I can get them right. One is you don't think that evil is a necessary entailment of free will for people that are developing Oh, no, I, de I definitely think evil is an entailment of free will. Okay. Can you guys use another word other than entailment here? Produces. Produces, yeah, okay. right. We agree that God is developing persons. Yeah. Okay. We agree that that requires free will. Yeah. We agree that that leads to evil. Yeah. We agree that that includes suffering. Yeah. That the evil leads to suffering. Um what you disagree with is whether God would have to design a world that includes the four D's in, in order to meet the things we just listed before. Yes. Whether or not that's a necessary cause. Okay. So that would just require me to go back to the four D's and explain why I think that each one of those is a necessary requirement for moral freedom to exist. And I guess that was what we tried, tried to do in the previous episodes. There also is a disconnect with the biblical narrative of where we see reality described by scripture in terms of necessarily requiring these four Ds. I see scripture saying that these four Ds are not good things in the world. And actually, the idea of, of death itself is God's enemy, not God's servant. It's So the way that death limits suffering, I don't think is a... Uh, a correct conclusion to come to from scripture. And I understand what you were trying to say that death limits the degree of suffering we experience in this life, but death is something that was introduced into God's creation and something of which God is striving to eliminate and actually works against God's purposes. So if God wants to make souls, his enemy is not his servant. Wait, wait, you said death works against God's purposes? Yes. So then why does God allow it to exist? Because I'm going to argue for free will and the entrance of sin and the consequence of sin being death. So God isn't the author of death. You know, God isn't saying, I want people to now die. You don't think he says because of sin, I need to make sure people now die? No, I don't think he's using death to achieve his purposes. I think he's saying that humanity, because of sin, will now undergo the consequence or punishment, which is death. And I don't think God brings about our death. So if you have somebody who just died, I don't think that that is God acting to limit their suffering in life. You don't I think it's a natural consequence of the arrival of sin in the world due to the fall of humanity. But the account specifically says he removes them from the garden so they can't eat of the tree and, and remain alive. That he he makes the specific decision to prevent them from from living on. Like it, it's inherently God's decision. It's not some third party or some metaphysical thing outside of God's control. It's it's his judgment, right? To remove them from the garden, yeah, I believe so. But he definitely says that the consequence of sin is death. 
And that consequence of right. sin isn't just an absence from being able to eat the tree of life. It's that there is a rebellion against God and the judgment and condemnation of that is met with the punishment of death. Oh, man. See, I think if, if we see it that way, then we've got to say we've got to believe in inherited guilt. Do you believe in inherited guilt for a baby that dies? Original sin? No, I mean inherited guilt. You're saying that, that death is due to our guilt, right? Death is due to the presence of sin, and everybody in the world is guilty of sin. So yeah, I'm, I'm espousing a fall of humanity that has universal effects for every right. descendant of Adam and Eve. And I'm just saying that it's God's will that the world that we occupy is the way it is in response to sin. I keep hearing you say, what I think I hear you say is, you said it's not God's will that we die. Well, then whose will is it? Like he's in control of the world, right? He could make us stop dying, right? He made the rules. He engineered the consequences. Yeah. It is the case that he told Adam and Eve before that if that death would be the consequence, right? So yep. that's that's actually pre-engineered yep. as a deterrent, perhaps as well. But uh, that was his decision. I mean, it could have been a spanking, you know, <laughs> or or some other negative physical consequence. Uh, not that Adam and Eve were necessarily children. I, I mean, I really don't know. But uh, the idea is God designed the consequence. And when the fall came, it didn't immediately happen. It happened when God brought the consequences to bear. There was a time between when they sinned and when the consequences came into effect. I, th I guess what Brandon's saying here, what I think you're saying, is that on this soul-making idea that uh, God engineers the four Ds as the consequences, because now we're not in that Edenic mode, we're in the fallen mode, and that, you know, I wonder if we can't just have our cake and eat it too, because, um, yep. you know, the, the four Ds are negative, it's not like you go to a random person and be like, hey, so what do you think about damage? Your average person is going to say, no, I don't like damage. No, I don't like death. I don't like decay. And I don't like deprivation. You know, I, I always feel like that about, a, you know, 11 o'clock. I'm like, I don't like deprivation. Where's my lunch? These things are negatives, right? But looked at from the other side, they're also soul-making qualities to them. So that even in the consequences, even in the negatives, there is a redemptive potential. I guess the, where the rub is, is Brandon says they're necessary, and where Jerry's saying they're not necessary. If we soften that and we say they're effective, you know, you could still make that defense. You could say they're effective at soul making. These are, these are good policies. Do they have to be the best? Yeah, I, I'm a perfect, you know, being <laughs> theologian. <laughs> I'm going to say that God's going to create the best possible world that he can, but why not just say that these are, these are good conditions to accomplish what, what he wants. I, the biggest concern I have is the idea that the conditions we're under are not somehow under God's sovereign control or they weren't his design. Someone else is to blame. I don't think we can possibly make a theodicy unless God is wisely designing and creating the world that we're in now, including the things that he says are our enemy, because we know what he means. He means 
we have to reach a place where that's no longer a required judgment on man. And whether, look, judgments don't all have to be punitive. They can be righteous and for the benefit of the person. And so I, I think these have to be righteous and good judgments, even the things that God is working to not need anymore in the future. Well, to say that God is sovereign, I think we all agree. Yeah. Now, the distinction on how sovereign works in God's economy is probably a matter of debate. If you're a Calvinist, you think God's sovereignty is meticulous providence. Yep. You know, I would say God's sovereignty extends to that he is the ruler and the rightful ruler of the world. And that, yeah, everything that's happening, either in a passive sense that he's allowing free will to exercise its privilege, or in that God is intervening and having this divine intervention where he has the world go the way he wants it to. Uh, for example, like producing the Messiah, Jesus, is something where God intervenes in the world and has something happen in order to bring about the program of redemption so that he can redeem creation and uh, restore it. Uh, so I think we're sort of all on board with this level of sovereignty. Just the way it works, I think, is sort of a, a matter of disagreement. But I will also say that the uh, the way you described the righteous judgments is not wrong. You know, I think that God does punish people in righteous ways. I don't think that those type of punishments, for example, a murderer being executed in ancient Israel is for the good of the murderer. I think that that punishment is for the good of the people. The elimination of evil among them is the reason for a lot of the punishments in the Mosaic law. To look at the way that suffering and evil happens in the world in a positive light, I'm not saying there's nothing good that can ever come from hardship and suffering, because I think God can work in all of our circumstances for our good and bring about increased patience, character, hope, love, compassion, things like that. However, what I am saying is that the way the world works is not the way God wants it to work in the way that he originally designed it. And that's why the story of scripture is that the world was good it turned not good in the sense that it was no longer following the original design and God is seeking to get it back to that original perfection. Now, if the way that soul making occurs is through all this evil and suffering, uh, that doesn't pair well with that storyline because there's an ineffectivity to soul making in this current life with what evil and suffering are capable of producing. And therefore, that's why Irenaeus and Hick and other soul making theodicy people say that you have to continue suffering even after death and that God is eventually going to bring every person to perfect moral stature. Yeah, they, he has a universalist view that I, that I don't share. The, the thing that you just said that I think is maybe the most striking difference between our thinking is this idea that th this world is not what God wants, I think you said. It's not the way that God wants the world to be. Okay, so I'm saying that it is the way he wants it to be because he has those three omnis and giving an account of why it's good for him to want it to be this way for a time, temporarily. And I don't understand how a Christian who thinks God has those three omnis can say that God brings about a world that's not what he, how he wants it to be. I'm trying to figure out how to how to say what you just said. God's still doing it, right? God's still the one that cast them out of Eden. God's still the one that brings death into, into his creation where it wasn't before. 
right? I think I'll push back on the idea of making God the active agent in death. I would say I I don't find that in scripture. I find the devil is described as the one who has the power of death, not God. God is not the one who holds the power of death, scripture says. So when you say God uses death, I'm like, where do you find that in scripture? Well, I'm just basing it off the idea that he's ultimately has all he has all the power to 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 react to his creation the way he wants so you're putting the blame on the way that the world is on satan but wouldn't god still have the authority to determine whether that's the way he, his world becomes after the fall i'm confused i i can't tell whether god is the author of the post fall world and the governor of it or if he's not this this is a major difference between the two perspectives here. Yeah. On the one side, Brandon saying, "Look, this is an engineered stage of time," and uh, what Jerry, you seem to be saying is that uh, this is a consequence of human decision and satanic involvement, right? And you wanna you wanna blame disobedience and the devil. Uh, and Brandon saying, well, hold on, God's the one that set the rules up. One of the rules could have been everyone gets destroyed. That's not what happened. They continued to live, and they and these four, these four Ds came in. It was a delayed death. It wasn't an immediate death, right? One of the consequences could have been that um, every time you sin, you have a hair fall out, uh, in which case Brandon would be the chief sinner of us all. <laughs> <How are you? laughs> or it could have been that, uh, you know, if you sin more than so many times in your life, that you're sterile and you can't have kids. Or in any millions of other scenarios where consequences could be meted out. You know, God engineered those consequences uh, to be what they are as he articulated them in Genesis 3. And as we see them, in fact, play out. And uh, so, but it seems like you're, you're not willing to recognize God's sovereignty in the punishment or the setting up of the fallen condition here. Uh, I'm recognizing God's sovereignty in the sense that he created the free will of his creation, both angelic and uh, humankind, and that there are consequences to disobeying God. And those consequences are the penalty for sin. And when sin entered the world through the disobedience of humankind, Adam and Eve, that that then brought on repercussions. I don't think God was like, up, oh, you sinned against me. Now I'm going to make creation bad. I'm going to make people die. I'm going to make sickness, disease, and death. I'm going to make the world difficult to produce food. I'm going to make natural disasters. I'm going to make all these evils in the world in response to what you just did. I think that they're natural entailments. And I think God is sovereign in the way that he did organize the world, but I don't think he's the active, the agent behind bringing these things in as a way then to rectify what has happened through soul making. That isn't the biblical story that I understand. So if God is not the cause of these changes, is there some kind of metaphysical force that causes these changes to be made? I'm still looking for the agency that, that you say God doesn't have in this. Is God's hand forced to make the judgments that he does in response to Adam and Eve's disobedience? I think the question that I would like to ask is, where in Scripture is God the active agent? 
Well, there are only so many options. If there's a physical cause, then we understand how that works. What we're talking about is physical, but it's also metaphysical. Let's just take decay for a second as one of the four Ds. Somehow, some way, someone or something has got to go into Adam and Eve's DNA and introduce some sort of a issue with those little strands at the end so that over time aging can occur. We understand that it's a physical, on the telomeres, that's a physical aspect of humanity that is changed. So how, how do you account for that, Jerry, without God actually doing that? Yeah, I do hold that there is some sort of a metaphysical change as a, on account of the sin that Adam and Eve committed. That they forever changed the human race in which the only way to rectify that change is through the new creation that is found in the redemption and the cross of Christ. Right, right. But the point, my point is, God is the one that activated or executed that, that alteration, right? Uh, no, I, I don't think God is the active agent that actually went in and shortened the telomeres. Okay, so then Brandon's question is, was who or what did? Yeah, I'm, I'm saying that there's a metaphysical reality to the disobedience against God. That there is some way in which sin, this metaphysical reality, has changed in the entire reality of the world. That through that, our bodies, our minds, and, and our spirits and everything are all corrupted. That there is something in us that is different now than in the original creation that was perfect. It sounds like God is subject to this metaphysical reality or force, and he could choose or ordain no other once the fall happened. I think that saying God is subject to it, I think God is the one who designed the world to be this way, in the sense that he is the one who is allowing disobedience through free will, and then on, in part with that, the consequences of disobedience God is allowing to occur. God is not controlling the world and having it go every single way he wants it to and preventing anybody from disobeying him. Well, um, I wonder if we could come back to something that really drove Brandon in the beginning uh, to look into this subject, uh, which is the, the scenario of premature death. And uh, this is really one of the most painful uh, experiences that makes so many people ask the question, why God? And uh, so, Jerry, if you could just run us through from a free will theodicy, how you make sense of premature death in, in a scenario where there's no reason why God couldn't have saved this person from a heart attack or uh, a blood clot or uh, some other kind of situation like that, where if God had intervened, then the person would easily have been able to live and it wouldn't have affected, you know, who's the prime minister of England or anything. You know what I mean? Uh, there, without tons of ripple effects and everything else, we're not talking about such a scenario, just something simple. So, uh, yeah, if you could just run us through how your theodicy makes sense of that, I think that would be a good place for us to kind of start wrapping things up. Okay, sure. So, in a free will theodicy, the idea is that God is a perfect being, and he created a perfect world. And in that perfect world, he put man and woman. 
and he gave them commandments by which they're supposed to live. And that if they didn't live according to those, that there would be consequences. So this man and this woman, Adam and Eve, uh, they get deceived by the serpent, which we could label as the devil, uh, and they decide to disobey God. They decide to do what God told them not to do, and thereby sinning against God. From that, there is a metaphysical change in them and all their descendants and the entire world at large, to which a prior fall state didn't include natural disasters, disease, uh, viruses, sickness, uh, and other suffering and evil. That that is something that happened post-fall and as a consequence of the fall. So now we find ourselves in this world that is corrupted through sin and that doesn't go and operate according to the way that God originally designed it. And that in the midst of this life that is filled with evil and suffering, God is at work to bring about a plan for humankind's redemption. And that even in the midst of the evil and suffering, God acts in different ways, sometimes intervening, sometimes not. But all the time that he is acting, he is seeking to bring about the redemption of his people, which is through a Messiah who then was born as the person of Jesus of Nazareth, who then lived a perfect life of obedience and then died upon the cross, that then God's plan was that those who want to be free from the corruption of this world through sin can find that freedom in Christ through their trust or faith in him. And that ultimately one day that the power of evil that is seen through sin will be eradicated and that God will restore the world back to the Edenic paradise and people will not suffer from evil and sin any longer. So in the free will theodicy, uh, I think that it's not a airtight explanation. And to be honest, I don't think it is completely satisfactory, but I think it offers answers to questions that are more satisfactory than a soul-making position. Uh, just one more, one more uh, clarification on that, Jerry. So uh, what do you say to somebody who's just uh, lost their relative, they're in a lot of pain, they're Christian, and uh, they say to you, why didn't God answer my prayers or protect this person? This isn't really a free will issue, you know what I'm saying? But I'm asking you to answer it from that perspective. Yeah, uh, I would say that we live in a world that is broken. We live in a world that is riddled with evil and suffering. And every person is going to be exposed to this at different levels. And that it's not to blame God for what is happening to you. Rather, I think the thing to encourage people in that sense is that during this time of suffering and grief, the thing to do is to turn to God because God is the one who can comfort them. God can offer things that the world cannot. He can help to heal a person's heart. He can help them to have the endurance to make it through this hardship, to know that that they don't have to go through it alone. 
You know, so I, I don't think trying to justify why God didn't do what they wanted to do, I think that that's a misdirection of the way to pastor somebody through a, a, a deep sorrow or a time of grief. I think the thing to do is to explain to them why God is there and what God can do for them if they will turn to him. Uh, Brandon, did you want to offer an explanation from the perspective that you're taking? Yeah, please. And I would say that as much as I agree with much of what Jerry has said, I find that to be a misdirection play that is taking the person away from what has directly happened and the direct question that they've asked of God, God, why did you allow this to happen? Why have you put soft persons in a world full of sharp objects? And Jerry's answer appears to me, the distinction between our views as I'm hearing it is, I'm saying God did it with intent, with purpose, in response to sin, to resolve the problem by making us into something new. And I hear Jerry saying that there is no agent that did that, that it's some kind of metaphysical reality that forces God's hand, that now God has to respond to that metaphysical reality and solve that rather than solving what's going on in us as agents who have to choose. And so I think it goes back to one of the things that we talked about really early um, in the first interview, which is there are these fundamental assumptions that we bring in this case about the nature of God's sovereignty, about what caused sin and what caused the world that, that we see around us. And I'm saying it's God and his judgments. And so when I go to a family that's hurting from that, I'm going to say, I know it doesn't seem like it on the surface, but if we look at it, God has really good reasons that benefit all of us, each of us individually and all of us collectively for having the world be like it is to solve the problem that was introduced originally, this problem of sin that we all participate in. And so I would try and give them reasons. Obviously, there's other things that Jerry said that I, I really agree with, that God has made provision for our suffering and for addressing sin both through soul making, but also through his governance, through a, through a human agent eventually. But I think this question about the ultimate cause of the, the state of the world is this key, if I'm hearing the distinctions between this right. Okay, well, we're just about out of time here. Um, any concluding remarks, Jerry, that you'd like to make? It just seems what you're saying is that you're telling people what is happening to you is for your good. You may not understand it, but it is. And that's a hard pill to swallow. That's funny. That's that's exactly what I think of the other view. <laughs> <laughs> that that that's saying I'm saying it's for these specific reasons. If God were to do it otherwise, look how bad it would be. And we can start to understand. I, I think God reveals to us why he does it this way and why the fallen world looks like it does. Maybe he doesn't give us that much and maybe it's an overreading. I just looked through my Bible and doing some research before this for all the passages that talk about soul making or moral change, not soul making, moral change. It's everywhere in our Bibles. If that's not a fundamental good that he has built this world to achieve, then I think we have a, I don't think we have a resolvable theodicy option for us. I think we've, we've punted on it and just said we have to believe in God because of his power and just because of who he is. All right. Well, we're going to have to cut it off there. I'm sure you guys would like to talk for another 
couple of hours and uh, really hammer this out. But uh, I do appreciate both of you and your time in expressing these different perspectives today. Well, thanks, Sean. Well, I appreciate it. And I want to say to Jerry, I really appreciate his pushback. And I hope that people listen to it and where they find flaws in my thinking that Jerry's pointed out, I really hope they'll take them to heart. And uh, I, I don't want to seem arrogant. Uh, I'm just trying to make the, the best case that I can. And hopefully where I'm, where I'm making mistakes, that'll be obvious and, and it won't hurt anyone. All right. Well, that's it for this conversation. Thanks everybody for listening here to the end. If you'd like to come on to reststudio.org, you can find episode 365, Challenging Soul Making Part 2, and leave your question or your comment on this episode. If you would like to follow up with Brandon Duke, you can get in contact with him on his website, truthborn.org. Or if you would like to get in contact with Jerry Weirwell, you can connect with him on his site, jerryweirwell.com. And both of those links are in the show notes for this episode. Uh, in your device, as well as online at restitudio.org. I did want to read out a couple of quick comments. Heather Kay wrote in on episode 363, Why God Allows Suffering, saying, Thank you, Brandon. This is a much more satisfactory explanation than I have heard before. Isn't it interesting, too, that often our sufferings cause us to seek more? Our experiences often prove that what we originally thought or were taught is not true, and so we pursue answers. I think that must be a part of this soul-making of which you spoke, which is a brand new term for me. And she goes on from there. Yeah, this is what makes soul-making attractive to me as well, Heather, because what we find here is an account. Uh, I think Jerry has pointed out a number of the flaws, a number of the biblical theology problems with a thoroughgoing Hickian soul-making, but I don't think that's what Duke was really laying out here. Um, I do think that there are still some disagreements between these two, but there, there's definitely something to be said about the soul-making theodicy that does give an answer, or at least a partial answer, can we at least agree on that, that God's initial conditions for setting up the fallen state of our universe are such that moral development can occur, and uh, so that that is a good that God aims at, and it's not a guarantee. We're not pulling in universalism, and we're not dealing with all the exceptions, but just sort of a minimalist case, I guess, for soul-making here. And that really does help us understand, to some degree, why death, decay, deprivation, and damage exist. It doesn't give us a thoroughgoing explanation as to why God intervenes at different times and then doesn't intervene in other times. Uh, that really does get left for another conversation. And that's really more, for me personally, what I'm interested in. So I'd, I'd love to hear uh, any of your thoughts on that very subject. Uh, somebody else named Jamie wrote in on episode 364, Soul Making Part 1. That would be our last episode. And said, I have listened to all three so far of the Soul Making Theodicy. It's impressive, but I'm not convinced. I find something is off somewhere. My first impression after listening coming up immediately were, what is the point in bringing Jesus to this world? Well, Jamie, that's also a question I brought up, and I hope you have a good, satisfying answer to that, because Duke did actually give a good answer. Jamie continues, why have revelation where there will be no death, no suffering, no tears, if suffering was always God's plan? 
Well, Jamie, I can answer that as well. That would be a temporary situation that suffering is sort of built into the way the world is now, but not permanently built in because presumably we would be soul made at that stage in the game when when the uh, the final age comes about. Maybe we're not fully soul made, but God makes up the difference by his grace. Anyhow, uh, Jamie continues, I'm a little confused as to what Brandon Duke is ultimately trying to convey. If there's any soul making, it is a consequence of the fall, not an overall plan of God. I think the best book I ever read on the question of death, suffering, and evil is a book by Gregory Boyd called God at War. He explains death and suffering, in my personal opinion, very clearly, and I find it the most satisfying response out there. Hey, this is a book that I'm also interested in. I don't have time to get into it now, but I would love to hear if any of you who have read this spiritual warfare approach to the whole question of why God allows evil, why God intervenes, sometimes when God doesn't intervene. In particular, the passage in Daniel comes to mind where the angel excuses himself for uh, being about three weeks late, if I remember correctly, and uh, says, well, there was spiritual warfare happening, so I'm here now. But uh, really, from the very beginning, Daniel, when you asked and prayed and started fasting and set your face to get answers to these things, I was dispatched, but I got waylaid. So to what degree does God allow for waylaying or suffering or autonomy to some degree among spiritual beings? And how does that play into what we're experiencing here in the lower realm of earthly concerns? So that's really a question I have. I don't know if Mike Heiser uh, has some scholarship that touches on this whole subject of the problem of evil and when and where God intervenes and how does he self-limit his intervention? Really, that's the question that I'm interested in. So uh, thanks for writing in, Jamie. I'd love to hear more your take on God at War, because like I said, I haven't had a chance to read it yet, uh, or anyone else. So please do come on to restitutio.org and leave your comment. That's it for this topic for now. I, too, am not fully satisfied. I, I do really appreciate how much Duke put into this. My goodness, three years of studying, reading all these different books, and four episodes of content, and uh, I guess what I'm saying is we still want more. Probably not right away, because I've got some other stuff planned for the near future here, but uh, thanks so much for doing that, and thanks, too, to Jerry Weirwell. Never afraid to jump in the ring with somebody and push back, and uh, I really do think a number of Jerry's critiques are uh, really key for us to work into however it is we perceive uh, this big question. So thanks so much to both of my guests for that. Uh, I do want to let you know that I have an interview coming up next week with Jeff Dybel of Australia. Hopefully I said it with enough of an Aussie accent there. Um, he's going to tell his story about how his own journey of faith developed and resulted in not only him starting a flourishing church where he was the lead pastor of 19 years, but also what ended up happening that squeezed him out when it came to light that he no longer held to certain doctrines? So stay tuned for that for next week. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. If you'd like to support Restitutio, you can do that on our website. We'll see you next week. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.